Hello, listeners, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the befuddling of movies, either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson, a writer for the Geek Show and Horrified, writer of booklets for Second Run DVD, and a filmmaker in my own right. I am joined this week by. Uh, hello, I'm Jeff Pizak. Uh I am a, uh, I guess they could call me a former newspaper writer. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm a full-time movie fan since a young age. Uh, and I am also known as Scrabble Face over there on Letterboxd. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Cool as Ice is the subject of this and uh, the soul movie, you will be astonished to hear of Starving Vanilla Ice and the film whose description I found online is uh, a modern remake of the classic biker movie The Wild One with heavy emphasis on the fact that rap star Vanilla Ice is playing the Marlon Brando role. I do love that heavy emphasis. Um, <laughs> This is yeah, you know I've never I've never seen the 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 wild one uh, yeah so I mean I, I've seen Rebel Without a Cause and so I have a little bit of a insight to what they're doing here but uh, did you see that I've never seen the wild one although I feel like it, it's one of those films that has been so parodied that I'm not sure how much you need to see it you could probably just like stitch together clips from The Simpsons and Red Dwarf and have basically the whole story right there sure yeah this is interesting for me because i've reviewed a lot of films starving artists who i remember from my teenage years and i've reviewed a lot of films starving artists who got big before i was born but this is one of the first times that I've reviewed a film with an artist I remember from my childhood. For some reason, the late 80s, early 90s did not throw up many pop stars who reached that level where someone would make a film starving them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, for, for me, this was this came out when I was in high school. Um, I was a little older as a teenager, so, but yeah, you're right, that around this time, there weren't a lot of those vanity uh, or, you know, pop star vehicle projects that there, there were prior, I think. I think in Britain, part of it was um, our charts were a very early adopter of Acid House and Techno. So you've got like the big musical moment, movement of the moment, the type that normally people would make films about is dominated by people who were deliberately very anonymous. So it doesn't work at all. But um, I mean, this is a classic example of that problem, isn't it? Cool as eggs, where by the time someone gets famous enough for someone to say, let's make a movie out of them, um, about them, by the time that movie comes out, they will probably be on the downward slide. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely the case here, for sure. Um, you know, he just didn't have that staying power, I think, as a star uh, to to really outlast, you know, that that film production cycle. I think he was already kind of on the, the downslide when this hit theaters. Yeah, because this is, let me, let me see, this is 90, 1991. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So Ice Ice Baby's already come out. Um, 
and there, there isn't really a follow-up that he had to that. I, I did something that I haven't done before, actually, um, when I was researching this, and I'm surprised I haven't done it before, uh, which is that I watched an episode of VH1's Behind the Music to study for this. Because, like, my, my only real memory of Vanilla Ice from when I was a kid was I remember he was absolutely everywhere for a while, and then he just disappeared. And looking back, the reasons why he disappeared were very obvious, but I was, like, eight, nine. I didn't really have the, the mental space for a discussion about cultural appropriation at that time. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, that was that was always part of his narrative, right? He was the mm. white rapper. He was, you know, the pop face of something that was more of an underground movement. Um, mm. You know, his office and authenticity was always kind of in, in question. Uh, I know definitely for me, it was a barrier. But like I said, I was in high school. I was on to more idiosyncratic artists by that point. Uh, so yeah. when he when he came on the scene, um, you know, it wasn't for me, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I sort of, I, I felt slightly, a, a bit of sympathy for watch, for him watching that VH1 episode because he insisted that when he was coming up, he had an almost exclusively black fan base. And I thought, well, that's probably true. You know, even today, I don't think you can get ahead in rap music without having a pretty sizable black audience. But when he hit big, he was like, his image was made over, but it was made over in an odd way. It was like, I think if he just wanted to be a pop star, if he was wanted to be like a novelty rapper whose novelty was that I'm the white guy who raps, he could have probably ruled it out, but he wanted to be a massive pop star and insist that he was, you know, from the streets and he had gang experience in his youth, which is totally untenable <laughs> right right yeah yeah i get yeah you're absolutely right i think uh if you look at somebody like eminem who came along later mm. um you know he had kind of the same narrative and that you know he came you know he came up from the streets he grew up with like black friends and it was a little more you know tied into it um but there that you could verify uh vanilla yeah. didn't necessarily have have that you know it was all created in uh you know a boardroom somewhere yeah yeah i mean there is a very funny moment on behind the music where he talks about the one definitely scary thing that happened to him when he was young which is that he was stabbed in i think he was stabbed by someone who was like robbing a convenience store or something uh but and it sounds horrible you know all sympathy to him for that but the way he describes it he's very enthusiastic he's going and this guy he came over and he's going yeah 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 <laughs> he's very happy to have that little shred right. of hood experience to cling on to i think right right yeah no and i'm sure he's told that story so many times he's got <laughs> you know he's got the perfect dramatic uh yeah exposition for it so so this is, uh, I'd say, a movie that began its process after Ice Ice Baby, after he had, in retrospect, hit the biggest point of his career. And it's 
it's weird, isn't it? Because this is one of the first hip-hop movies. I mean, there had been the odd one throughout the 80s, stuff like Breaking, Tougher Than Leather, which is a wholly different kind of misjudgment, <laughs> I think. But yeah, <laughs> there hadn't been this, I guess, studio-driven effort to say, all right, we're going to take one of the templates for pop star movies and we're going to apply it to hip-hop. I mean... Breaking was done by Canon Films, and they were very outside of that production line system, uh, which I guess is a polite way of saying they didn't have a clue what they were doing a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm thinking um, the other one that comes to mind for me is Disorderlies with the Fat Boys. All um, right. Yeah, that, I mean, so that so that was a it was a comedy, and it was set up as sort of a sort of a culture clash. Um, but you know they the the three uh rappers come in and, and teach the old white guy ralph bellamy to be funky and you know loosen up and it's it, so it's that it's that sort of story mm -hmm. um but yeah you're right you're right personality driven you had tougher than leather um uh, crush groove was sort of oh, biopic yeah. sort of film you know yeah but i really yeah i really can't think of anything um where a rapper was was being put into that template where you know like the juvenile delinquent or or whatever they were whatever they were trying with this yeah and it, it is worth yeah. questioning what they were trying with this at some <laughs> points i yeah. think <laughs> but yeah um it's interesting because doing this podcast you do start to recognize a lot of those templates and it was obvious by the early 90s that you couldn't do one of the classic ones with hip-hop which is the sort of hard days and buying wacky misadventures stuff that isn't going to work in a genre that was increasingly kind of obsessed with authenticity and honesty um it's strange that they until i think about eight mile uh eminem again uh until eight mile no one had really tried at doing the other common template, which is Star is Born. No one had ever done the sort of rise to power thing, which is weird because that is absolutely made for telling stories about hip hop, I think. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I haven't really kept up with recent biopics, but I feel like that once once hip hop became entrenched enough that, you know, the older stars were getting those biopics, uh, it's definitely that that's the story that gets told the, the rise and, and maybe a fall but um, yeah that Star is Born narrative is definitely uh, what else are you going to do with it if you're trying yeah. to tell the story I guess you know I mean it's the story that a lot of hip-hop artists are telling in their lyrics right so instead we get something else which as we've said is this very 1950s kind of juvenile delinquent movie um but tonally i mean if it was just rebel without a cause with vanilla ice in the james dean role that would be weird that would be weird enough but tonally it is like uh, do you remember when they did that experiment where they gave octopuses ecstasy <laughs> I think I heard about it, yeah. When I imagine an octopus on ecstasy, I imagine it, it must have felt something like the writer's room for Cool as Ice, where you've just got tentacles flying out in all directions and there's no coordination because no 
two scenes feel like they're from the same movie. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. There's uh, the con not necessarily in the continuity, but just the impact of it. It it has a very sitcom kind of feel where mm. there's a setup. People walk away from the situation and they've just forgotten everything that just happened. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's the only film I've seen that I can think of that has a sitcom reset button that gets pressed like in between <laughs> scenes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's such a weird tone about it. It doesn't, um, you know, for trying to to take that older 50, 1950s kind of story and kind of bolting it onto this persona, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of dissonance that we get, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into it as we talk about specifics. But but yeah, I definitely you you, you feel. It's definitely one of those films where you see it was created for the youth market by people who don't remember what it's like to be part of the youth market. You yeah. Know, got the, yeah. 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 It's the way that it flows. We're part of a youth market that now no longer exists. And so you have these like weird bits of old fashioned genres bolted on, but it begins. It begins on the title track, which, my God, is six minutes long. And, you know, <laughs> you think he's he's not Radiohead. He, there's no reason for Vanilla Ice to have a six-minute track. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, I can't say I've sat down and listened to it on its own. But, yeah, in the movie... Um, yeah, it's it's he's got a couple of short verses, but yeah, it just it just goes. I think better to uh, to showcase it's uh, the guest star on the trek, uh, Naomi Campbell, who I did not realize the first time I watched this had made an album after this um, and had a kind of a career or at least a, attempted a career as a singer. But because when I first watched this movie, I, I first watched it for the first time a month ago. Um, and it just kind of went into one eye and out the other. I said, oh, mm. the, Naomi Campbell, they must have got her to, to be in the scene. But no, that was actually her singing. So maybe maybe that was part of it to give her a little more uh, maybe. You know, time. I feel like I, I have no way to verify this, but I feel like the opening was added at a very late stage where someone clearly looked at how the film starts and thought, oh, God, that doesn't work at all let's bolt the star's new music video onto the start so at least the kids who are paying to see this get what they've come for like without waiting around that that definitely makes sense now that you say that because i'm thinking about how it starts otherwise and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be there um yeah and and he really doesn't get another musical performance for a while in the movie so yeah probably just get him in up front because he's not playing a pop star in this. It's not like but when it started, my assumption was, ah, this is Vanilla Ice's character's new music video and we're going to watch him walk off set and you know, move past his adoring public. And no, no, there's none of that. It is just a music video. Yeah, they're, they're, I don't even know what this club or concert space is. It's just sort of... Uh, it's an old warehouse. It, you know, is it an underground show? If so, why do they have this elaborate lighting setup? You know, I, yeah. I, why why uh, is a it, supermodel there? It's, that's kind of a mystery as well. 
Right, right. I, I, you know, the only thing I think it sets up at the end when he's off stage, he runs into, uh, I forget the girl's name, but she's the groupie who gives him her number. And later on, yeah. it's, you know, it becomes a, a little sticking point between him and his love interest. But um, that girl is Bobby Brown, who was the Cherry Pie video girl, I believe. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but again, it's, it's, are you just sticking in a cameo for, 1991 or is you know was that supposed to be part of the narrative i don't know it's very strange i think as a fan of early 90s music video aesthetics i had to restrain myself from cheering when i saw a fan that had a big spotlight behind it man people thought that looked very cool in the late 80s early 90s Absolutely, yeah. You see that, you know exactly when it's from. <laughs> it's probably as good a time as any to raise the fact that the cinematographer on this film is Janice Kaminsky, Steven Spielberg's regular cinematographer. Right. Yeah. No. I and that's another thing that it, that on opening onslaught of credits and music and lights uh, that went in one eye and out the other. I said, "Wow, Kaminsky, huh? Interesting." Because you know, you go from this to. Schindler's List <laughs> years, you know uh, okay good you know good on you man but um yeah that is really surprising and there's there's some very odd uh interesting camera setups that happen once in a while in here um but I don't necessarily get get the idea that he had a whole lot of input to uh you know to things maybe you, you notice something different well I I, I will say that I think it is an extraordinarily good-looking film, and when it engaged me, it certainly was not because of the script, and it certainly was not because of Vanilla Ice's thespian abilities. It was because it is this extraordinarily cared-for-looking film, and I don't want to definitively say that David Kellogg, the director, has nothing to do with that, but his only other film credit is the Inspector Gadget movie. So mm-hmm. I think if we're going to like lay it at one person's door, Kaminsky is the most likely candidate, right? Yeah, no, that, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so when it gets started proper, he has this extraordinary meet-cute with his love interest, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it cute, more of a meat <laughs> menace. He uh, he has a look of, and I, another thing I didn't notice the first time I saw it, but when he first lays eyes on her, uh, he has this look of malice on his face, like like an animal stalking its prey, like he's, you know, like a jaguar who just found, saw a raw steak or something. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just like the way he locks his eyes on her and and throughout the rest of the movie is just completely one track obsessed with this girl. Um, you know, it's a little, his, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of disturbing when you've seen I, uh, where it goes. I think it was the moment at which I realized that this movie was going to be absolutely insane because as you say, he, um, he, he looks at her with this bizarre expression that I assume is vanilla ice trying to go for sexy bad boy. Yeah, but yeah. it's like yeah. Yeah. It, it's somewhat miscalculated, I will say. 
yeah his his oh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but his no, no. his persona has a uh, he's got this i'm playing it cool i can't be too emotive hmm. but it also seems like nothing he's saying has much you know he doesn't have a lot of um uh, uh thrust behind it he doesn't he isn't he doesn't really seem to care one way or another even when he's you know defending himself or things later he just kind of keeps it at that even level tone absolutely yeah and it, he, he does it when he's doing the most extraordinary things too which is another thing that gives you that slightly psychopathic vibe that i assume right nobody picked <laughs> him up on because um right he jumps the fence on his motorcycle. He's riding along with his crew um, on a motorcycle and he sees this girl, Kathy, played by Kristen Minter, uh, riding a horse. And they share a, a moment, I guess we'll call it. Um, and then he, he jumps the fence on his motorcycle and the horse bolts, understandably, and throws her off. And you think, that's something new. I've never seen a romantic comedy kick off with the male lead nearly getting the heroine killed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he knocks her off and then he starts insulting her. Yeah. Uh, like the whole exchange, you, you're uh, if you're just looking at it objectively, like there's no connection. He's like he harasses her. Like maybe he's like trying to prove his motorcycle is faster than a horse. He somehow manages to get his motorcycle in the air over a fence from the road with no ramp. Um, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then and then it, after all that, and she she stalks off, and they go their separate way. He just looks after her, and he goes, "Yup, yup, she likes me." I don't know where did where did he get that from? I I didn't see her showing any sort of affection to him, you know. But yeah, then again, you know, in his mind, he's locked in on his prey and. He's going to make her his, however, however he can. So, yeah. I feel like if this was made in the twenty first century, I would object to it a lot more because I would think uh, this is written by someone who's got a, an attitude that's formed from like pickup artists or incel shit. Mm -hmm. um, but in this context, I really don't think they're playing for that. I think they genuinely. It is the work of a, a writer and a creative team who are trying to square that circle we mentioned earlier of, all right, he needs to be a rebellious bad boy and also this needs to be a PG certificate film for young girls. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, there are ways to do that, but none of them will be found in the film that we are watching. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, he's... He is consistent in that sense. Is it, the way he approaches this relationship is, if again, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> uh, so they, they I, I'm not sure I can quite describe what happens next, but they end up with this old couple who feel like something from a Pee Wee's Playhouse version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's super, I'm guessing it's California, supposed to be suburban California. Um, you know, one of the, one of uh, Vanilla's crew, I hesitate to call them friends because they don't really seem like they know each other or, or yeah. really enjoy each other's company. They just are there. Um, but one of his, one of his entourage bikes, his motorcycle breaks down and uh, they pull up to a house that has uh, a 
yeah, like Pee Wee's Playhouse is a great example of it. It's the crazy production design. I took them to be, you know, kind of old California, ex-hippie, uh, you know, artist, eccentric, bohemian types. Um, but yeah, like what happens next makes virtually no sense. They, it, it's a house full of like outsized props with, is it is it like a map of the world they've got painted on the roof or something? Yeah, they have a bunch of globes set up, like little uh, little posts along. Uh, yeah, they've got all sorts of. They've got uh, words written on the wall inside. I don't really, don't know if I uh, caught what was written on there. It is so weird. I, I wondered whether they were inspired by like those southern outsider artists, if they were meant to be kind of a Howard Finster type couple. I mean, maybe they wanted to set it in Kentucky or somewhere, but as soon as they said to mm. Vanilla Ice, all right, let's hear your southern accent. They're like, oh, Jesus, set it in California. <laughs> right. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But yeah, they, they don't seem like they're completely out of step with the rest of the movie in the, in the world they're in, even in their neighborhood. It's yeah. a very basic suburban uh, middle America kind of uh, setting, but they're just kind of plopped there and, and get no reaction from their neighbors that we see. And I think tonally, how, how what I wrote in my notes is that when Vanilla Ice isn't on screen, it feels like a standard children's comedy of the Eva, where, as you say, you've got, you've got a gang who have no connection to each other. Their only role is to like be divided up by stereotype. There's the cool one, there's the wacky one, there's the token female one. You know, it's, it's mm. on the level of things that are written for an audience who do not care about character development yet. So everything feels very broad and colourful and wacky. But when Vanilla Ice is in it, I, I can only compare it to a Harmony Corinne film where like, you've got this absolutely bizarre character who is dressed weirdly and whose actions make no sense. But everyone just looks up to him and agrees that he's really cool and this is normal, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I... I uh... Harmony Corinne's a good, a good comparison. You know, I, I definitely, yeah, I was seeing all that stuff as, you know, you have the template and that's what the character is and mm. that's what he does. And it doesn't matter uh, how he performs in that role. He's just the cool guy that everybody wants to hang out with. And, you know, the, 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 the square local kids are just going to immediately have a problem with, even though they haven't talked to him, you know, he's just, uh, He's just filling that role. Yeah. I mean, maybe it would have been less weird with like a, a different rapper in the title role, but I, I don't know. I really don't know. It did give me that kind of... I haven't seen the beach bum yet, but what I have seen of the mm. beach bum, where everyone just like venerates Matthew McConaughey's character despite him not actually doing anything, it is a bit like that, except it's not consciously absurdist. Right, yeah, it's just uh, reaches it on his own terms. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you know? it's hard to it's hard to buy him as cool, and I'm not just saying that because he's Vanilla Ice, and we remember him as like at best we remember him as a guilty pleasure. But it's like he delivers dialogue like your dad's trying to make fun of rappers. You know, when your dad's all like, "Oh, why are you listening to this? It's just hey, hey, what's up, yo, shizzle." It's like, that's exactly yeah. how Vanilla Ice talks. 
Right, right. Yeah. And, and you, you have to wonder, is that his, his improvisation? Was that written into the script? Or is he saying, nah, nah, dog, we talk like this, yo. And, <laughs> you know, because that's, it's, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. He, um, yeah, he's got all sorts of weird phrases he drops throughout. He's got all these catchphrases. Uh, I mentioned yup, yup, which yeah. it, it's one of the things, one of the many things he has stenciled onto his jacket at one, you know, at one point, um, you know, he calls uh, Kathy or, you know, as he immediately labels her cat when he finds out her name by kind of social engineering, listening to her boyfriend, talk to her and oh, finds out who God. she is. He, he changes her name. He, he calls her the chick who, the chick who drives the horse, because that's what you do with a horse. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got all sorts of weird little phrases he comes up with. I mean, it's, it, it is hard, as you say, to tell who's responsible for those things. I will say it, it is clearly a film made by someone with no feel for the music, because mm -hmm. there were several moments, emotional moments, where it cuts to a scratching solo. And, you know, I, I love old school hip hop. I love the sound of scratching. It really gives me a sort of warm, nostalgic feeling. But it's not romantic. And it's clearly like being done by someone who thinks, what part of this music is emotional? I, you know, I don't know. Let's just go for the least loud part and hope that's like how people enjoy this stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, again, I think it was it was the music that he had at the time. So, um, yeah, I'd be honestly like if you mentioning that there's a there's a moment where they're playing uh, like this slow jam rap that that by Vanilla Ice, oh, and there's yeah. a good yeah there's a good ten seconds where he's they're, they're playing this slow mellow lover man kind of rap music where he's trying to get onto a horse and unable to get on the horse and i feel like if you just clip that 10 seconds out and put it on a loop you'd have a really great beam for all i know there is one um but yeah pure cinema pure cinema <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> so we've, we've touched on this a bit but as soon as he meets kathy again like there is no part of him that thinks I almost got that girl killed. I must like make amends to her somehow. He immediately goes into being an absolute turbo dick, even worse than he was before. Yeah, yeah. He starts he starts his alpha. Yeah, he well he sees her that he noticed that she happens to be across the street from the eccentric couple who's fixing the bike. Uh he tells his friends he's going to uh quote schling a schlong. Um <laughs> this is you know, he's upfront about it at least, you know, but yeah, yes. he goes over there and just, he just happens to come upon them while they're kind of arguing. And mm. so it just, it almost, it's, it's almost like, you know, he, uh, he waited for his moment and took it, but yeah, yeah. that's when he drops the, the infamous line. Uh, Drop that to, to and get with the hero. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like watching it, watching it again, I, I noticed that he, that's really the moment that turns her because she's pretty standoffish until he says that. And then she laughs and catches herself. And from that point on, her attitude is, um, you know, maybe a little standoffish, but definitely interested. So, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and it's it's weird that that's that is the moment that like flips her. It 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 is so weird. And at, at some point here, he steals her address book, which is the point at, at which I just thought. This is a bit like Twilight, isn't it? You've got like this walking mm. series of red flags and we're just going to accept this as romantic. Yeah, Twilight's a great example. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> comparison. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, you had that creepy feeling and you're like, well, maybe we'll get to, to when he gives it back to her because like- Oh boy, uh, yeah. Yeah, he, well, if you want to talk about it now, he ends up sneaking into her house yeah uh, yeah in in the morning and dripping uh an ice cube a melting ice cube into her mouth from i'm, I'm hoping he washed his hands <laughs> uh, but he but he, he's dripping this water into there then gets into bed with her and and then was oh yeah by the way i brought you notebook i think he gets into bed with her and says we can't wake your parents up and it's like i i distinctly remember thinking you could take this scripted scene out and put it into a drama about a predatory pedophile and the script mm -hmm. would need very little adjustment. Right. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and there's, that ice cube thing is so weird because there is, <laughs> after he puts it in her mouth, there is this very fetishy shot of her just licking her lips and it, yeah. it's like, th this is a film that is ultimately in intended for little girls and i don't say that to belittle that i think little girls deserve better cinema um yeah. but it, it, that was the image he was going for it's like i just want to get into actually his his process at the time because his his first single was a cover version well not a cover version it had the chorus of uh, play that funky music by uh, mm -hmm. average white band was that get uh, or wild cherry oh maybe Am it was I, wild yeah. cherry yeah maybe that's why bobby brown's in it actually i didn't think of that uh let me see yeah mm. wild cherry it was wild cherry oh. um so he did that and then some dj did the classic like dj thing of saying oh wonder what's on the b side to this flipped it over it was ice ice baby uh and that catapulted him to a different league. His first album was released with a different title and different cover art that kind of played up uh, his image, his sort of, I, I hasten to use the word sex appeal, but that's what they were going for. Mm -hmm. um, and the third single he released was a, a single called I Love You, which is like, I, I don't know whether that was the slow jam in here, but it's that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. over the course of just his first three singles, you can see that there is a massive and very quick and very successful effort to reroute this guy's career from the white rapper who still has street credibility to a pinup for teenage girls. Sure, yeah, and um, you know he's 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 kind of both. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, it, again, it, it's a very manufactured image. Mm. Um, and one which, I, I mean, I think that he, I don't know that he was necessarily comfortable with for, um, for too long. I mean, obviously his, uh, his star kind of faded. And by the time he put out his next album, he had a completely different style from what I 
recall. Um, again, I never got very deep into vanilla, so. Yeah, I should point out I have not done uh, the pop screen deep dive into the back catalogue of Vanilla Ice, but I know that, you know, in, in some ways it is it is about doubling down, I guess. He always tried to maintain the contradiction that by the turn of the millennium he was putting out music that was aiming towards sort of limp biscuit, corn kind mm -hmm. of market, but he was also going on the surreal life and other reality shows, so that issue that he had of wanting to be like gritty and tough and straight and wanting to be a, a funny mainstream star who wasn't that threatening, that's still kind of what he does. That hasn't changed in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was I was surprised to learn, and this is how much I pay attention to current pop culture, is that he's parlayed his fame, in, you know, from from the reality shows into a he, now he's a home improvement guru he has i think eight oh. seasons maybe more of 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 going into people's houses and doing you know makeovers um which <laughs> I, I, you know i don't know if he's still going for bad boy there but it, it is definitely a you see the title and you think oh vanilla ice well how surprising how do, what does he know about home improvement you know and um so maybe that contradiction is what he's going for. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's, some of these shows um, I don't think have escaped America, I guess. But he oh. pops up. He still pops up occasionally on the British uh, TV and radio scene. I remember in the early noughties, I think it was a show called The Farm. Uh, it didn't last mm -hmm. very long. The concept of it literally was that they just got a load of celebrities to help run a farm. And Vanilla Ice was on, and he, this was like the middle of the George W. Bush era, and he was playing the kind of ugly American role. And I'm sure that was, like, I'm not saying he's a sensitive and enlightened guy, but I'm sure that was like a heel role. I'm sure that was something that he was consciously doing because it created good television. Sure, sure. No, yeah, and that, that make that, uh, I recall that now that you're mentioning that, but yeah, I've never been a big reality TV uh, <laughs> consumer. So like I said, I was surprised to learn he's had this other show for eight seasons. For eight seasons, um, yeah. yeah. Something like that, yeah. But the seasons also turn over pretty quickly in that realm, so. Yeah, um, true, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, an, it's interesting to see how he's tried to, um, you know, walk those lines of still being, you know, uh, you know, a rabble browser and, you know, kind of a bad boy, but, uh, you know, he'll come in and redo your kitchen and give you a taste <laughs> of scones, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, um, there, there's a few things that I want to sort of pick out here because the, the plots, I mean, it, it goes in the directions you'd expect. I'd hate to leave any of our listeners with the impression that, the Vanilla Ice movie has a Coen Brothers-like ability to zigzag narratively because it does not. <laughs> but there's a number of things I want to pull out. Um, there's an early one where we're introduced to Kathy's parents. And I mean, that's interesting. Firstly, is it her mum? Her mum is played by Candy Clark. Right. Who, I mean pop screen royalty because she was in mm -hmm. The Man Who Fell to Earth, you know, lifetime mm -hmm. pass for me, I think. Um, but they are gathered to watch 
<laughs> what as far as I can tell is a news report about how their daughter is nice. Mm -hmm. How she's nice and she has a horse. <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, uh, California becomes a bit dull once you get out of the big cities, but yeah, that is treated as a major breaking news story. Well, I think the interesting thing about that is, so that, I mean, I think about in terms of how local news in the U.S. works, and there's always those human, human interest stories, you know, yeah. it, you know we've, we've, we've shown you all the murder and the sports, but here's a nice story about someone in your neighborhood, um, which makes sense, but it's definitely a local, a local channel, it mm. would be broadcast in the area, but the purpose of that scene of that um that broadcast is so that the bad guys the the evil ex-cops who we haven't even touched on no. um one of those guys is sitting in a bar somewhere and sees this being broadcast and tells the guy hey you don't have to turn it up and it's really strange you know i was thinking you know so so this guy got into witness protection uh her uh kathy's father uh and had somehow been moved to the exact same area where the bad guys are because there's no <laughs> way that 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 news broadcast would have reached beyond like their region so wherever those guys wherever they got moved from was not very far from where the no. all the crimes went down so yeah that's a it's yeah it also that's not the thing too hard it also does raise the question, I mean, this family, we learn, is supposed to be in witness protection. And Kathy doesn't know this, but her family, her father and her mother certainly do. So it does raise the question, I mean, if a local news crew come round and say, we would like to do a piece on your daughter, we, we hear she has a horse. Well, why did they agree to that? <laughs> Right, right. Or and and why, even if they did, why did the dad agree to be on camera? Because yes. they kind of they, they call him from off screen and they pan the camera over to him and then he's kind of covering his face doing one of these little <laughs> jobs. And like that's gonna make a difference. Like uh, yeah, you, know, you could just say no, man. You know, yeah. I uh yeah. Now like do you say I, I I do not think the you know, that if they turn this local news channel down, there will be loads of people camped outside their door saying, tell us about the horse, tell us about right. the horse. Right. You know, it's... right, right. Yeah, there's no, there's no stakes to it. So why, <laughs> why he agrees to it? I, I have no idea. Do, do, are you familiar with the, the guy who plays the dad? It's uh, Michael Gross. Uh, that brings a fake bell. What else has he done? He, so he was in uh, Tremors. Oh, it's probably right. like the movie that comes to mind, but he was also the dad on the sitcom Family Ties. Right. Uh, yeah, Michael Michael J. Fox's big breakout uh, mm. role. So, so yeah, he already kind of had that that uh, nice, unassuming dad personality, which is why I think they they probably cast him um, as one of the few recognizable faces other than Vanilla Ice in this. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. That yeah, they 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 have him in this role and then they kind of flip it by him being a, you know, a, a bit of a bad boy himself for, well, if you want to call it that for going against the grain with his uh, colleagues and renting them out. That's quite good. Yeah. I, I didn't have that association with him, but that's actually one of the few smart bits of casting in the film mm. really, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Um, the other thing that really um, stands out to me and is such a fascinating scene in terms of the whole vanilla ice kind of um, the, the rocks that he was about to hit with his career, shall we say, is as his relationship with Kathy develops and as he tries to get Kathy away from um, this guy, I think he was like a soap opera actor who plays Nick, her boyfriend, who's got a very kind of kind of an Agent Cooper look to him. You know, I yeah, I liked Nick as soon as I saw him, and the more he hated Vanilla Ice, the more I thought there's there's something to be said for this guy. Um, sure. But there is a scene where they go to a bar and a band of, I think, entirely white guys, certainly white lead singer, are playing a cover version of Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself Again by Sly and the Family Stone, which feels very calculated because as, as soon as you see it, you know, again, this is one of the classic scenes of pop movies. They go to a bar, the band is shit, your hero gets on the stage and you know, blows them out the water and cheering if it happens. But it feels like a very calculated move to have a scene where the implicit punchline is, haha, look at these dorky white guys playing black music in a vanilla ice movie. Right. No, absolutely. I yeah, I maybe it's just that they're they're not doing it as well as he does. Mm. Um but yeah, no, that's there's definitely that scene because you know he gets up there and Immediately, they, they have the turntable set up already for him. Uh, very, yes. yeah, very handy. Um, and then, but but then when he takes over uh, the club, he's there's about a minute of intro. Everybody's just standing there watching him, very, you know, uh, respectfully. Uh, and then his flow. I mean, again, maybe it's just personal preference, but he, especially in that scene, he's so robotic there's no yeah. passion in what he's doing he's got that like i mentioned earlier there's that kind of like flat um you know too cool for school kind of uh delivery but it's hard to believe everybody which would, would a wait for him to start rapping and b once he started just stand there and say oh well, this is really interesting you know it just <laughs> i would i would be bored i'd be like yeah whatever you know so but you know this that's that's where kathy's from I the, the British music critic Alexis Petridis, I think he was reviewing Clean Bandit when he said this, said there is a stock scene in British children's drama where like if a teacher or a parent or some similar authority figure is introduced hating modern music and only liking classical stuff, the last scene of the drama will always be someone playing like a techno remix of Beethoven's Fifth or something, and I'll be shot of him going, hmm, this is quite good. And that right. scene feels like an effort to apply that template to like the entire history of black music in America, where <laughs> suddenly everyone's like, ah, this kid actually gets it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that scene in so many movies other than this, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a great example of it. From well, at my, the time, I mean, at the time, this is the problem that Vanilla Ice was trying to navigate, that he was being pushed into this realm where you cannot have street credibility. There is no such thing as a pop star with street credibility. There are some who were a bit spikier than others, but when the competition includes like NWA and the Ghetto Boys, you're not going to win that fight. And around right. 
around the same time, Third Base, who had white members themselves, released uh, that song Pop Goes the Weasel, which is mm-hmm. a really sort of furious diss on Vanilla Ice. And in a strange way, they're doing successfully what this scene is trying to do, which is say, look, we're nowhere, we know we're white guys doing black music, but we're not like those white guys doing black music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up third bass because yeah, that, that came to mind for me too. Mm. Um, yeah, the, vid- the video, I think they had them like beating up a fake Vanilla Ice. It was uh, someone, I forget who it was who played. Uh, it was someone notable who was the Vanilla Ice mm. lookalike in that. I'm going to have to look this up because... Uh... Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember, but I do remember that video. And... Um, yeah, it's just, you know, kind of taking taking the air out of it and taking the air out of yourself, you know, getting ahead of the argument. I feel like artists today are much more attuned to that, but they're mm. also more, much more attuned to uh, managing their own personal uh, persona out there. Yeah. It's just like the sign of the times. But um, yeah, did you, did you find out who that was? Oh, boy, did I. <laughs> uh- it's Henry Rollins. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to watch that. For all it's a diss track, that is quite flattering, isn't it? To cast Henry Rollins as Vanilla Ice in your music video. Absolutely. And well before he was, you know, in, you know, Jack Frost and things, you know. So, yes. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's extraordinary. Um, so you, you've got this tone that is is tense throughout, and I think the the, the last third of it is just where it kind of collapses for me, um, because you you can't reconcile it in any way. Like obviously, it turns out that Vanilla Ice's character Johnny is the key to defeating these bad guys who were hunting Kathy's family, but when he plays that fight, he is playing it seem really tough. You can tell him he's thinking, you know, I hope I get like an action movie, maybe a martial arts thing off the back of this. But David Kellogg overdubs it with, I think at one point someone gets punched and there's like little Tweety Bird sound effects, like an old mm. Tom and Jerry cartoon. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's just irreconcilable stuff. It rips itself apart. Yeah, I mean, the bad guys themselves really don't seem like much of a threat. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's two guys, the one who watched the video, and then he's got a sidekick who's constantly making these kind of quirky, you know, quirky bad guy banter. Yes. Um, yeah, like they, they never, you know, there's this, this you know, they've... Um, they've kidnapped the brother and they're holed up in their, their stronghold and they're looking out the window and they see them drive up on their motorcycles and they, they, they call them aliens uh, as if they've never seen people on motorcycles before. Like they're so outlandish. They're just, they're not dressed that crazy or anything. Yeah. It's really, uh, but again, yeah. Like that, that whole threat, that whole, like, let's, we have to have this crime subplot in here. Yeah. Uh, it's never convincing. It's again, just I think another way to uh, give him that dangerous edge, or there's some sort of something illicit going on here to tie it into crime. And you know, hip hop is a you know a gritty you know milieu, so you have to do that. But 
Yeah. Um, I never, I never, you never feel the danger. God, no, no. I feel like if this was made about sort of three or four years after it was, they would have just cut their losses and made those guys like men in black or something like that, something mm. completely mm-hmm. fantastical. Because as you say, they certainly never convince as actual criminals. Yeah, even when they, they round them up, they, they, they drive in and they have them tied to the hood of the car. Uh, they look mm. very complacent. They're, they're, they're not struggling. They're not, you know, protesting. They're just, yeah, guess they caught us. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, um, yeah it's very, it's really strange. And, you know, I, I think for uh, one thing I noticed this time is that the whole reason they kidnapped the, the kid is because Vanilla Ice dropped him off at the house. Uh, he was supposed to be in Little League. His sister was supposed to pick him up. Uh, Vanilla decided to drive around with him and leave him at the house. And the whole reason the kid got kidnapped is because he dropped the kid there. So he'd better go rescue him. It's his fault, yeah. you know? I guess they little thought, oh, we can introduce a bit of complexity here. We can have our hero make a mistake after he's already won his, our hearts by um, Neely killing the woman he's into and stealing her address book and creeping into her bed ah no wait this isn't gonna work isn't it yeah yeah you have to give him the hero moment but yeah you know he's 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 fixing the problem he created so i mean good for you vanilla you know (laughs) (laughs) but in a strange way even though like the the last third of the movie is an absolute dud dramatically. It also is some of the most beautiful stuff. The the love montage, it is mm. more beautiful than any anything that can be described as a vanilla ice love montage deserves to be, in my opinion. Yeah, are, are you are you talking about the construction site one or is it? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It, it's got such a different kind of a playful tone that's actually convincing uh they're kind of swinging each other around i mean you don't buy the characters being in love but you definitely you can sense what they're going for it, it suddenly you know there are all these things of them embracing in fields of waving grasses and you think right i wonder you know is it kellogg or kaminsky which one of them is the terence malik fan here yeah yeah i could see that yeah um yeah, his his dialogue uh, <laughs> kind of ruins it, but but yeah, no, the, the the look of it, yeah, you're right. He's got that kind of golden. Uh, you feel the California, the sun. Mm. I mean, it's th- it's things like this that, despite the fact that it is a in lots of ways a very bad movie, it is also weirdly hard to dislike. I think. Yeah, it's. Uh... Uh, it moves pretty quickly, you know, even if nothing, the, the details don't really accumulate into something you're, you're in, uh, mm. invested in. Uh, it's pretty harmless, you know, it's yeah. pretty painless. I think it is, it is probably easier to enjoy it looking back when maybe if I'd seen it at the time, I would have had the same kind of worry that third base had, you know, I would have sat there and thought, have they cracked how to exploit and whitewash hip-hop? Is this what the future's going to be like? But as we know, it wasn't. And, you know, I'm not an Eminem fan, but I think he has, like, infinitely more of artistic credibility. He's, like, earned his place. Um, so this isn't really... And, you know, when when I think of white rappers now, 
like who were around now the main one i think of is lp who absolutely you you would have to say that if he is going for like if he was trying to go for that vanilla ice market he would not make the music that he does so it's pretty safe to enjoy that stuff i think oh yeah absolutely i mean lp came up as like an independent artist like yeah Mm. like it's one of the few current currently popular rap artists i'm like really passionate about actually because i i came up listening to his stuff but he um yeah he he uh, the whole race and trying to like play that into your persona was never part of his scheme yeah uh he is who he is you can see from his picture what he looks like and uh you know um but again he came around at a later time and he came around at a time where it wasn't you didn't have that scrutiny of the the mainstream he was an underground artist you know yeah. so he was that first and foremost in his uh i think in in that type of underground rap uh you know your uh ethnicity your gender any of that stuff doesn't necessarily um yeah become part of your you know i think it only counts when someone is like very big and when Mm. when someone is very big as with say macklemore uh Mm -hmm. last decade um there is this question of is this guy big because he's great or is this guy big because record companies would rather push a white artist than a black one and that ended up kind of doing for macklemore as well because people i think was it the grammys who gave his album like best rap record over to pimp a butterfly by kendrick lamar and everyone was like you sure about that and you were absolutely sure about that right right yeah um but yeah i mean that's yeah it's the grammys for you yeah um but yeah no yeah he he's a very different case because he also wasn't he didn't enter the world as a mainstream artist Mm. um he blew up into one and became you know i mean it was treated as a one-hit wonder basically but um but yeah i uh i think yeah you're right in in that kind of space where you've reached that level of fame uh it's the question's going to come up yeah yeah and you know the the fact that it comes up is proof that hip-hop is still in touch with its roots even though it is probably like it, the dominant form of music it replaced rock as the cutting edge a long time ago it's arguably now replaced pop music as like the standard type of music that the chart revolves around but it still has some kind of integrity and authenticity and and maybe maybe if you know it hadn't had to deal with vanilla ice very early on in its evolution maybe it would have never worked out a coping strategy for this kind of thing you never know true true yeah we can look at him as a growing pain yes (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, any closing thoughts about Cool as Ice or Vanilla Ice in general before we wrap up? You know, the the I would just wrap up with like a one thought toward the end of the film that I had. Yeah. Um, you know, if tracing that uh, that narrative of him being this stalker who kind of insidiously weaves his way into his uh, his quarry's life. Uh, at the end, uh, spoilers for. Uh, <laughs> cool as ice i guess uh but uh he whisks her away on concert tour with him 
um, because he is playing an actual venue at the end. He's on stage, so we can see, okay, I guess he is a musician. Um, and that's what he does. Um, but he's got her in the audience. He's, you know, she's not done with high school yet. Uh, the whole conflict mm. has been that she's going to college, uh, but she's there. And uh, he goes into this whole thing about how he's not sure she's for him. And he's, you know, he's just, he's a cool guy and, you know, he's in love now, but maybe not. And then I wrote down the line because it, it really stuck out to me. He said, uh, I'm glad uh, she came to her senses and put down all of her defenses. Uh, straight <laughs> up just telling you in the song that he was working this psychological angle on her. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He's a villain. If you ask me, he's a villain. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my last thought. <laughs> Season four of You on Netflix, Starving the Nil Eyes. That's what I want now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. But yes, if you uh, enjoyed today's podcast, we have bonus episodes for our Patreon backers. You can find those at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you also get early access to our other movie podcast, Directors Uncut, and my Doctor Who reviews. But until next week, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Jeff. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.